0: Hello and welcome to Life As It Is. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Today, my co-host Sharon Salzberg and I are joined by poet and novelist Quan Barry. Born in Saigon, Barry grew up in Danvers, Massachusetts, and currently teaches creative writing at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her latest novel, When I'm Gone, Look for Me in the East, follows the story of two telepathic twins as they journey across the vast Mongolian landscape in search of a tolku, or a reincarnate lama. Along the way, the twins grapple with questions of desire, doubt, and the place of faith in a changing world. In this episode of Life As It Is, Sharon and I sit down with Barry to discuss the joys and responsibilities of writing fiction the tensions between monasticism and modernity, and her travels across the Mongolian steppe. Okay, I'm here with writer and poet Kwan Berry and my co-host Sharon Salzberg. Hi, Kwan. Hi, Sharon. It's nice to be with you both. Hi.
1: Hello. Thanks for having me. It's
0: a pleasure. So we're here to talk about your new novel, When I'm Gone, Look for Me in the East. It's a poetic story of telepathic twins, one a renegade reincarnate Lama. When a monk traveling across Mongolia, together they're in search of the reincarnation of a Buddhist master. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and what inspired you to write it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I've been very fortunate to travel pretty extensively in the world. And usually when I go somewhere, I'm not sure how it's going to actually show up in my writing. I go first just to see the landscape, and then oftentimes the story won't come to me for quite a long time. So I was actually in Mongolia in 2008. And then I think it was about two or three years after that, I actually heard a story probably on NPR, where all of my stories come from, Mm -hmm. about the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama at that time was saying that because he fears the idea that after he passes that the Chinese will politicize his passing and name the new Dalai Lama, he was considering taking the unprecedented step of reincarnating while he was still alive. And doing that would give him the opportunity, obviously, to choose who would follow him and then not have to worry about the politicization of his passing. Since then, again, I think he said this in roughly like maybe 2013, he has since changed his mind and he no longer talks about reincarnating while he's still alive. But when I first heard that story, I have to admit, my mind just went like, wow, what would that mean to reincarnate while you're alive? And then I just sort of went down a rabbit hole of thinking about reincarnations in general, doing a lot of research and finding out more about them, a fascinating process, the different signs that are looked for and the ways in which the mystical element enters into the whole thing. And so I began to realize like, wait, I was in Mongolia. I have this interest. You know, I've been studying Buddhism for the last 10, 15 years. And I began to think about ways in which I might tell the story of a reincarnation and also simultaneously tell the history of Mongolia at the same time.
0: I have to say I was impressed with your detailed description of Mongolia, you know, its cultures, its landscape, the grasslands, the desert, the mountains, even the weather, the sandstorm, even bits about the languages you hear there. Tricycle had organized a trip to Mongolia, but we canceled it because of COVID. Now I kind of at least feel (laughs) that I've sort of been there, although we will go there. So how did you come up with such a detailed and sort of magnificent depiction of this vast country?
1: It was easy because it is, it's a magnificent landscape. The hospitality that comes out of the tradition of living in a very sparsely populated land, the kind of welcoming that people give because of that. You know, there's like one person for every, I'm not sure how many square miles. It's a really fascinating culture and again, in landscape. So in some ways, like really Mongolia did the work for me. You know, you just had to be observant about it. I was very fortunate to be able to travel there in the summer. I have to admit, I haven't been to Mongolia in the winter. It's tremendous in the sense that it's the same land mass as Texas, and yet it contains just vastly different landscapes. So you're absolutely right. You know, in the West, you have mountains that border um, Kazakhstan or they're close to Kazakhstan and Russia. And so you have a people there that have more in common with Russians and the Kazakhs across the border. In the South, you have the Gobi Desert and people who are living there. In the central parts and eastern parts, again, it's a very different. It's more of the grasslands and things like that. So I just found myself just fascinated with the landscape itself, and then also with the culture. So you know, oftentimes we don't remember that Mongolia was the center of the world. You know, about a thousand years ago, I do believe that Time Magazine actually named Genghis Khan, who we sometimes call Genghis Khan, you know, named him their Man of the Millennium. Right. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's one of those situations where. People who were conquered by him have told us various stories of him over time that we've come to accept, but that maybe the truth of who he was and the things that he accomplished is much more complicated. The landscape, the culture,
2: all those things gave me a lot to work with in putting the story together.
0: Yeah, I was wrapped. It was
2: wonderful. Thanks. My mind is still grappling with what does it mean to be reincarnated when you're still alive? Oh, I can't yes. quite figure it out. <laughs> and maybe you can share some background about The actual tradition of searching for tulkus and who's typically included in a search party and what are some of the rituals associated with the search?
1: So reincarnations are only found predominantly in the Tibetan tradition. So obviously, in thinking about the Tibetan school of Buddhism, you know there are four schools there. Sometimes people associate them with colors, but again, they each have a particular name. And again, that's one of the only real tradition that really looks for reincarnations in the way that we think of, right, for these people who are called tukus. And so generally speaking, what happens is depending on how a reincarnation passes away, you know, if it's sudden, it's different. But if it's a slower process of their dying, that oftentimes they themselves write themselves letters or give clues as to where they might be found or things like that. So again, it depends on how they actually pass away. Then usually what happens is after they've passed, a committee is actually put together my understanding is that most of this happens in Dharamsala in India, and the committee might consist of someone who's called the heart disciple of the person who's passed away. And so that particular monk is usually somebody who was a younger and was sort of mentored by the person who's passed, and that they then will, again, formally be charged by the Dalai Lama and I think his counsel to go forth and to find the clues, some clues which may occur when the body is cremated. Sometimes there are clues looked for in the body. Sometimes monks will go to particular places in a landscape and look to you know, a particular lake or things like that for signs of where this person may be reincarnated, but it's a process. And my understanding is that oftentimes it takes years to find people, generally speaking about two to three years. So usually these children are found before, I think, the age of four, generally speaking, although obviously there are exceptions to that. So you do hear about people being found at much older ages.
0: So there are cases also in which there are multiple incarnations, is that right? It's thought that a
1: person, a reincarnation, a tukul, can reincarnate different aspects of themselves into different bodies. And so currently my understanding is that in Sikkim there might be a situation where somebody has reincarnated and, and there are two people. And again, I'm not an expert on this, so I don't pretend that I am. But um, my understanding is that there might be one person, perhaps, who embodies like the compassion of the original person, and then there might be somebody else who maybe perhaps embodies their wisdom, you know, things like that. So it is possible.
0: So throughout the book, we see Buddhism interacting with indigenous religious traditions of Mongolia, particularly shamanistic rituals and festivals. So can you tell us more about how Buddhism fits into this diverse religious landscape?
1: Mongolia is a really interesting story because in the early 1900s, it became a communist country. And when the communists rolled in, it's true that a lot of the traditions, the Buddhist traditions specifically, were destroyed. A lot of the monasteries were destroyed. A lot of the monks were actually killed or driven out into freezing weather and died that way. Buddhism was not allowed to be openly practiced in the way that we think of it for many, many years in Mongolia. And so my understanding, though, is in that time, the various shamanistic traditions were allowed to continue. Um, And so the early god that many people, again, still, for many Mongolians, my understanding is that there's no, you know, if you're still thinking in terms of Tengri, the blue sky god, the eternal sky god, that it wouldn't be unusual to think in terms of Tengri being there and for there to be relics of the way in which people still practice that kind of shamanism. So for example, there were these cairns that are constructed all over the country where people pile rocks in high places. High places are seen as being the spots that are closest to the sky god, Henry. And so it wouldn't be unusual for people to go to these shamanistic places where rocks are piled and yet to use Buddhist prayer flags and Buddhist scarves and intertwine them in these rock formations. So there are ways, I think in some ways that's a great metaphor for the ways in which the two, again, the shamanistic traditions of old and Buddhism have been woven together. And so people oftentimes don't necessarily make the kinds of distinctions between, oh, well, this practice is specifically shamanistic and this practice is specifically Buddhist. But yes, but in many ways the two things are very much intertwined.
0: Right, well, what struck me is that the religious tension That we see in other countries doesn't seem to exist in Mongolia. In fact, the tolkus, the candidates that they are interviewing, none of them comes from a Buddhist tradition.
1: That's definitely something that I drew on in thinking about this as a work of fiction, right? And so in the long period when Buddhism was not allowed to be openly practiced in Mongolia, you know, you traditionally did not have that many reincarnations that were found there. There was actually the case where one of the last incarnations, the Jensen Dampa, I believe he's called, he actually fled Mongolia and lived in secret and only returned there in the late 1990s. So for a long time, there was not a tradition because of, again, uh, the Soviet influence in the region. There was not a tradition of reincarnations. So it's true that in my work, it is a work of fiction. And because I wanted to show the broadness of the landscape and the different kinds of cultures and things like that, that I did choose to use some poetic license in that sense and thinking about who might be a reincarnation, particularly in a country in which the tradition is coming back. And so I looked at it a little bit more broadly in that sense.
0: You mentioned the Soviet destruction of Buddhism in Mongolia, and it's a shadow of the past that sort of hangs over the present. I'm wondering if you had any insights into why this tradition, this Buddhist tradition, this Mongolian Buddhist tradition managed to survive. I mean, we see similar destruction in Tibet under Chinese rule. What is it that allowed it to survive? How did it survive? Because it was a pretty brutal destruction and an intentional Mm -hmm. erasure. This is just my
1: personal guess, if I had to say why that is. But a part of it, I do think, is the landscape and is the vastness of how much space people have and things like that. So for example, I mean, you could be sort of doing your thing out on the step and your closest neighbor might not be for 10, 20 miles, you know. So I think that that definitely helped people to continue to live their lives. You know, there, there is a saying, which I can't remember right now. It's a Mongolian saying about the idea that the mouse lives like a different life out on the step than the mouse does in the city. And so it's the idea that basically things can happen in the city that really don't affect people living out on the steppe in the same kind of way. And so if I had to guess, I would say that, again, that the landscape in certain ways really helped certain traditions to carry on in a way in which people perhaps didn't feel the same kind of repressive forces that they would have in the city. So that would be my guess as to why that is.
2: You know, something you said made me realize how in awe I feel of fiction writers, because you create an entire world. And that's both a heavy responsibility in terms of the integrity of that world. And it seems like it would be also its own kind of fun. You know, when you said, I used poetic license, and I did this, and I did that. I thought, wow, you know, it's quite something, I think, to have everything you want to say kind of woven together into a, a story. It's fantastic, because, of course, that's real life. That's how we live.
1: You're absolutely right, though, about the responsibility aspect of it. You know, and thinking about, like, who do I see my readership as being? Is this book for people who already know a lot about Buddhism? You know, is it not for people who know a lot about Buddhism? The Vietnamese writer, Viet Ten Nguyen, often talks about, as a Vietnamese writer, he wants to write books that use Vietnamese characters, but that don't feel like they have to explain things that actual Vietnamese people would know. And so I felt myself constantly sort of treading that line, like, okay, these are things that Mongolian people would know. Obviously, my speaker in my book is a Mongolian character, but how do I still convey these things and make this voice sound authentic? but at the same time recognize that my primary readership is not Mongolian and will not be familiar with various things, right? So you're absolutely right. It's a lot of fun to create these worlds, but at the same time, there is a lot of responsibility.
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the features, you know, in your book is that we see Buddhism coming into contact with an increasingly commercialized world. So it's not just Buddhism, it's like Buddhism today. (laughs) And particularly in the relationship between the two twins. It's Chulun, am I pronouncing that right? Mm Mm-hmm. Chulun and Mun, and can you speak a bit about the tensions they represent between monastic life and modernization? Great question. So, in thinking
1: about it, so I have two twins who are the main characters of my book, and one is Chulun. He's a novitiate in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and will be taking his final vows in a few months after the book opens. And he is the twin, he has an identical brother named Mun. And Mun as children was actually discovered himself to be a reincarnation. But Mun has since decided to leave to renounce his vows and is now living a secular life in the capital of Mongolia. So you have one twin again who remains a monk and will soon take his vows and you have the other twin who's chosen to leave. you know, when I traveled both in Mongolia and in other places as well, like Bhutan and India and places like Dharamshala and Sikkim, the first thing that I was really struck by I think many of us in the West you know, have these preconceived notions that monks, particularly Tibetan monks, are all living you know, in caves deep in meditation and not uh, engaged with the modern world. Very quickly saw that that idea is not true. You, know, you see monks in Dharamshala; they have cell phones, you know, there's ways in which they're very modern. I learned in Bhutan that there were actually quite a few monks who are on Facebook you know, and they very much enjoy talking to other monks in other countries and all kinds of things. There's a detail in the book about a monk who really enjoys walking around the particular grounds of this one monastery, singing the theme song to Titanic, you know, Um, and that's, that's true, it's based on something I observed. So I have these two twins who in very many ways really do embody this idea of a more traditional path, and then again, a more modern 21st century path. And so I was trying to show that hopefully by story's end, they have both gone on a spiritual journey and that they've both arrived at different places. So maybe perhaps that are two sides of the same coin in the sense that they're both maintaining their spiritual inner journeys, but doing it in different kinds of ways.
2: Well, Trulin in particular, you know, seems to struggle with doubts. He says, what do I know of life? Am I ready to give up the pleasures of living when I know so little of experience? And it reminded me, actually, of, in contemporary times, Minjur Rinpoche, who is a Tibetan teacher, and he went on a walking retreat, you know, where he just disappeared. And one of the things he said when he came back, referring to his life as a monk before he he left, was, I was like a prince. I didn't know anything. I didn't know how to make a fire. He ended up not being able to discern some kind of food. He got very sick with food poisoning and. It was sort of like a a very contemporary depiction of, I think, what you're talking about there.
1: I've actually read his memoir, which is just super fascinating. Yeah. And in thinking about it, you know, I spent not very long at all, but I did get an opportunity to spend some days in a monastery in Bhutan. And there, there was a young reincarnation, who my guess is he might have been younger than 11 or Mm -hmm.
0: so.
1: Very sweet boy, very shy. But I could also see the way in which his life was different from the other young monastics who were around him. You know, he had special quarters. There were certain things that were expected of him during puja, you know, things like that. So it was interesting for me to be able to observe an actual young reincarnation.
2: In a way, it sort of points to the ability to question within that path, is that okay? And the role of doubt, you know, is that okay?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually met, again in Bhutan, a very distinguished, or maybe I I shouldn't say who it is exactly, (laughs) but I, I met a monk who told me a little bit about what his research had sort of uncovered about even like the tradition of reincarnation in the Tibetan tradition and the idea that, you know, perhaps it came from the idea that these, you know, very successful monks would have followers who would gift the monk in life, you know, lands or what have you. And that after that person had passed away, because they hadn't had children or family, the question then became, what do we do with these gifts that were given to this monk you know, by his uh-huh, followers? Uh-huh. Perhaps this tradition of vining reincarnations was a way to keep these kinds of properties and monies, et cetera, et cetera, within you know, the domain of a particular monastery. You know, That was sort of his take on it. Having said that, though, he also at the same time believed in the idea that there are things that we can't explain. There are individuals who have memories and have uh-huh. experiences, and so while well, he had this was one way of thinking about how perhaps this tradition started. He also acknowledged that, yes, the world is a mysterious place and
2: who can say? It was also really interesting to see the twins have such different approaches to desire, mm-hmm. you know, and the mm-hmm. idea of temptations. And I wonder if you could say something about that. Yeah, that was a tough one. I had to think about what, again, their personal journeys would be,
1: their inner journeys and things like that. For myself, and trying to imagine someone who is about to take these vows and think about the kinds of things that they will be giving up, which is oftentimes how we think about it in the West, right? As opposed to what they'll be gaining. But I saw that as being his predominant journey. No kind of spoiler alerts, but in thinking about his twin brother, you know, who's also on a path too, it was important to me that in some ways they are the yin and yang, and yet they have more in common than they both realize. In the end, it turns out that maybe they're actually more similar than they are different. So I was definitely thinking in terms of of binaries, and yet, despite binaries, the ways in which things are one.
0: One of the questions I just really wanted to ask is, I was really taken with the relationship between the twins and the duality. One is fire, Tulku is fire, his brother is ice. And there are all sorts of dualities like that, where one has a shortcoming, the other tends to compensate, but there's often conflict. What was this sort of trajectory of them coming together as one, and how did you view that?
1: The beginning of the book, when they're in the monastery and they're just being sort of charged with this particular task of going out and looking for the reincarnation, the abbot of that particular monastery, he's asking Shulin to tell him a little bit about hell. There's different kinds of hell. There's one hell that's figured as, you know, as a world of fire and it's charcoal and all those kinds of things. And then there's another hell that is a world of of being withdrawn, and it's an ice world and things like that. So in some ways, right in the beginning, he's kind of talking a little bit about them, right? And the idea that it's an illusion, the idea that hell would even be figured in different ways is an illusion, right? So you get that right in the beginning. The way I was trying to structure the book was we see them on this journey, the physical journey, and also the spiritual journey, and that by the end of the book, without giving away any spoilers, you know, there's a moment where their relationship kind of reverses a little bit, where one of the brothers has to rescue the other one, who's usually been the rescuer. I was hoping by having that moment happen where their rules kind of reverse, then this whole sort of dualistic structure that they've created between them kind of collapses. And they realize that all of that has been an illusion in their minds, the way in which they have thought of themselves as being separate. I was hoping at that climactic moment that happens, that they're thinking about this has all just been a dualistic illusion.
0: Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back. St. John's College in Santa Fe, New Mexico, is for undergraduate and graduate students who seek meaning in their lives, who ask hard questions of themselves and their world, and who dare to free their minds. The Graduate Institute is home for students seeking a lifelong commitment to thoughtful, collaborative inquiry into fundamental human questions. Students pursuing the Master of Arts in Eastern Classics examine the core literary, philosophical, and theological works of India, China, and Japan. In small, discussion-based classes, students delve both deep and wide into the richness of Asian traditions and study one of two ancient languages, Classical Chinese or Sanskrit. The three-semester Eastern Classics program offers the flexibility of both online and on-campus options. Come join this vibrant community of learners from all walks of life. Learn more about St. John's Master of Arts and Eastern Classics, including online options, at sjc.edu slash tricycle. That's sjc.edu slash tricycle. Let's get back to our conversation with Quan Berry.
2: Can you share a bit about your own religious background? Do you mind? Okay, not at all.
1: Many people have complicated backgrounds when it came to how they landed on various paths. I was baptized Catholic, but raised predominantly Unitarian. And even to this day, I still consider myself to be a Unitarian, although I don't go to Unitarian service anymore. That's still, that's the deepest imprinting is Unitarian. And then about 10 years ago or so, I began studying pretty seriously Buddhism and all kinds of other things. And particularly in the Thai forest tradition of people who follow Ajahn Shah. I belonged to a sangha for a long time that was very important to me. Unfortunately, the smaller sangha that I belonged to with COVID, you know, we tried our best to be online, but it's only in the past few months that we're splintering a little bit, but hopefully that will come back at some point. But in a more broad sense, I really consider myself to be a student of just wisdom traditions in general. So I have an interest in Christian mysticism. I have an interest in Sufism. I have an interest in Hindu philosophy, particularly like Advaita Vedanta, you know, those kinds of things. Have a broad sort of interest in all kinds of things
2: like that. When you say Ajahn Chah, of course, I, I think immediately of his visit here to the Insight Meditation Society, where I mean he was such a funny character. And I'm also thinking now, you know, how does that fit into the characters you've created? That sense of reformation. The Thai Forest Tradition was a tradition that grew up in contrast to some of the excesses and maybe confusions that had arisen just historically as Buddhism got more to be like the state religion, and all of a sudden these people go off into the forest again. But Ajahn Chah was just hysterical. you know. Many of my teachers were from Burmese lineages, where you, you might do very, very, very slow walking meditation. And the whole nature, as you know, of that tradition of the Thai forest lineage is more like be at ease, be natural. And so these people were doing this excruciatingly slow walking here on the lawn. Mm-hmm. And Ajahn Chow would come up to them and say in Thai, you know, so it had to be translated, I'm so sorry, may your convalescence go well, you know, (laughs) may you feel better soon, you're so sick, obviously, can't walk like, you know, at a regular pace. He was really very funny.
1: I'm not saying that he was a model in any way, but in thinking about the character of Uncle, there is this kind of like mischievousness in him. And I think that, you know, wanting to get that across that Monk's, they can be funny.
2: And I'm curious if if writing the novel changed your own relationship to ritual or if there's anything that you incorporated into your life as a process Mm. of your own creation of this world.
1: Interesting. Interesting. So friends of mine who are really into their altars, (laughs) and I tend to have a much more sort of spare sort of altar. But in my travels, you know, I've picked things up, just physical sort of objects. My relationship to my altar hasn't necessarily changed I would have to think about it a little bit more. I think if anything, you know, writing this book has really just broadened because I, I do think, unfortunately, as we all know that sometimes, you know, when you first come to the tradition or a tradition, you can kind of become, I don't want to say dogmatic about it, but I think this, if anything has really thinking about, I didn't know as much about the Tibetan tradition and having to do that kind of research. And really, you know, sometimes it sounds bad when people refer to things, you know, there's talk in the United States about referring to like cafeteria Catholics, you know, people who pick and choose. Well, but I do think that that's what the practice is, you know, that's what the Buddha taught us, you well, know, find yeah. out for yourself if it works. And I think writing this book has helped me feel more comfortable about being able to decide what things I want to take on.
2: Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, it is. So uh, my first teacher was S. N. Goenka, and this was in 1971. It was January of 1971 mm-hmm. in India. And He taught in the form of intensive 10-day retreats, and the very first night of my first retreat, he said, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism, the Buddha taught a way of life. So this is something that's available to anyone that is interested, and you don't have to call yourself a Buddhist, and you don't have to just take this, let go of what, or relinquish what seems wrong to you. But there needs to be a real process of investigation, you know, and not just say, that's unappealing, that that'll make me get up too early in the morning, or something like that. And so in a way, that's what your characters are doing.
0: Your previous novels took place closer to home in Vietnam, where you were born. Am I correct? Mm -hmm, Yes. And then in Danvers, Massachusetts, where you grew up. How was your research process for this book different? I mean, I'm just really curious about this massive research project you must have undertaken.
1: And I have to admit that research is not my strong suit in many ways, right? So, but what maybe is my strong suit and what I maybe have been fortunate to do is to travel. So I'm the kind of person when I'm in a landscape, I hopefully absorb a lot. I see things, you know, I had this book read by some folks in Mongolia, you know, one of them asked me like, how did you figure out this thing? And I was like, well, I was there, you know, I saw that that's what people Mm -hmm. do. And thinking about my first book, which is set in Vietnam and basically follows a child is born who can hear the voices of the dead. And so my book follows her as she comes of age in Vietnam post the American war there. To write that particular book, it really was a matter of traveling around Vietnam. You know, I've been there about four times and just seeing things and talking to people. And the things that I had to research for that particular book, there was a section I needed to research about boat people and the ways in which people tried to escape Vietnam. And then I also had to research the re-education camps that happened there, as well as the French rubber plantations back in the 1930s. So those were things I read memoirs, you know, that's how I did my research for that. And thinking about this particular text, the ways in which I had to research, again, it was through travel. So like I said, I was fortunate to be in Mongolia I was fortunate to be in Bhutan, and in India, and again, to have access to amazing people who shared their knowledge with me and to be able to talk to them and find things out and to read books. So it probably wasn't as extensive a research. Well, I don't, I, don't, I mean, I read a lot of books. There's, there's obviously, there's a bibliography, but like I said, I think the most important aspect for me is just the idea of just being there and being in a space. The contrast to that is my second book, which is called We Write Upon Sticks, which you mentioned, which is set in Danvers, Massachusetts, which is an actual place and the place where I grew up. I actually did very little research for that book because I grew up there. I really did absorb the history of the Salem Witch Trials and all those kinds of fun things. And so fortunately, that was a book that was, it was a lot of fun to write. And, and it's true that I didn't have to do a lot of research because I really knew that material really well. But in thinking about this book, you know, I think one of the harder parts for me actually was because my background was more in, for example, like the Thai forest tradition and just making sure and talking to people like, well, would, you know, a Tibetan Buddhist monk, would they be familiar with this particular text or with this, you know, particular mantra or what have you. So that was definitely something that I needed other eyes on for folks to point out to me like, eh, that's probably not what, you know, in this particular tradition, what would happen, et cetera, et cetera. So.
0: So you're at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and there are plenty of sources there for you to draw upon. I think Richie Davidson is there, John Dunn, certainly people Sharon also knows. It seems like you had a search party of your own.
1: (laughs) I really did, and I was really fortunate to have access to those people who could then, again, help me then get in touch with other people. As you know, obviously, the Dalai Lama has a very special relationship with Madison. Going back, I think, to the 1970s, my understanding is that, you know, Madison was the first place that he ever delivered out uh, in North America, the Kalachakra teaching. She did in this place, Deer Park, which is about 20 minutes outside of Madison. So there's a rich community of obviously Tibetan Buddhists, but then Buddhism in general, when I first began going to sanghas and things like that, I had a friend and we sort of had this joke that we were making like the Buddhist world tour because just in Madison, you know, you could go to Zen things, you could go to Thich Nhat Hanh's sangha kind of things. Everything was available in many ways, again, within this pretty tiny place. I feel very fortunate to have been able to tap into a lot of the resources that were available to me in Madison.
0: Sounds like a great place to do that research. Yeah. So often we hear stories of Tolkus or the search for Tolkus, And rarely do we get a full account of the Tulkus themselves, or from their family for that matter. And did the process of writing this book, and Moon Story in particular, raise any questions about the ethics of identifying Tulkus at such a young age?
1: You have the galley of the book Mm -hmm. in the actual hard copy. I've actually extended the bibliography to include films. Mm -hmm. So right now there's no films included in the bibliography. So I watched quite a few documentaries about these kinds of things. One called like Mistaken Child, there's another one called My Reincarnation. I myself, I don't feel that I can decide, you know, whether or not this is just a simply a rich tradition that helps support a community, a particular community that's in exile right now, and it's a way for this community to, to remain intact and to keep its traditions going. I wanted to just present again, so Mun's, the ways in which he comes up against and finds himself sort of at odds with the tradition. I just wanted to be as true to that particular story as possible. My understanding is that it's not uncommon sometimes for reincarnations to temporarily leave the tradition and that oftentimes they do come back. I lived in Japan many years ago just for a year as an undergraduate, and I actually knew somebody there whose father had been somebody who, again, had been found as a reincarnation, had left as an adult, and had lived this life, and then had come back to the tradition. So I do think that you know when things are decided for you, and I tried to present this in the book in a conversation between Mun and Uncle, who is the older reincarnation, Tried to present the different ways that for Uncle, because he was found as a very young child, that he didn't necessarily have the same kinds of issues that Mun had, who's found a little bit older. I mean, that for him, it was simply a way of life, but that he did believe that after a period, the tuku who are most successful are the ones who, even though it's chosen for them, who do ultimately feel like they made the choice themselves, you know, at some point in their lives. So I did try and present, again, another side to it as well.
0: Right, we recently ran a piece on Kanchak Peldrin, a mother who refused to surrender two of her children after they were identified as tulkus, and eventually she's surrounded and forced to give them over, but not without a good fight. In that case, as with Mun, the tulku in your book, there's a kind of almost violent uprooting of a child from his family, and I understand that as Westerners looking in, it's really not for us to really say or think we fully understand what's happening here in its cultural context. Yet I have spoken with plenty of Tibetans who themselves are conflicted about this. So from their perspective, there's a discussion going on all the time about it's overly politicized or the needs of the child in this contemporary or modern society may be different. So the Tibetan discussion itself is actually more interesting than us looking in and making judgments. Did you hear much about those sorts of discussions?
1: I hadn't necessarily heard much about those particular discussions, but again, as I'd mentioned, when people would talk to me, there would be a kind of skepticism, but tempered with, I still a, a kind of hope. I think because it's complicated, and people realizing and wanting to carry on traditions at the same time, realizing that traditions also do need to change. Right? If traditions stagnate in a way, then that also can be a kind of death of a culture. You know, if things aren't reimagined for the next generation. So, I, I definitely everywhere I went, though, I definitely heard in people's voices. I I think in some ways, people, you know, wanted to share the best with me in certain kinds of ways, but I definitely could hear like the complication there in the kinds of things that they would tell me.
2: I'm going to indulge my fascination with a fiction writer. (laughs) I get to talk to, it ties in my mind to this last point, you know, like, did your characters start speaking to you? Did they come to life and disclose their dilemmas or their next step to you? I wish they had. Okay. <laughs> that's my dream of being a fiction writer is that, yeah, the, you yeah. know, they uh, take over. Yeah. come to life. Yeah, yeah they take I, over.
1: That happens for many people. It has happened for me, but with other characters. I uh-huh. think for me, like, for example, I'm working on a book right now, even thinking about the book that I wrote that's set in my hometown, in that book, those kinds of moments happened for me because those characters were much closer to who I actually am.
2: Uh-huh. Okay.
1: that's different for other writers. It's just how I work. For me, for this... I really had to work on it because I wanted these people to speak a certain way, but I also didn't want them to, quote unquote, sound like Yoda, right? right. You know, <laughs> human beings, But I'm trying So obviously they're speaking English in the book, but we're supposed to understand that they're speaking Mongolian or Tibetan. And yet, like I said, at the same time, I didn't want it to sound antiquated you know Mm -hmm, what I mean? mm -hmm. So it was something that I had to think long and hard about. So I think that because of all those different sort of filters I was working with, I think that's probably one of the reasons why I didn't necessarily feel like I was just channeling them in ways if I had had less filters.
2: That makes total sense. And one of the very interesting things you do in the novel is you play with our notions of time. Like every sentence is written in the present tense. And I wonder if you could tell us more about that decision.
1: Yeah, that was tough. So did begin my writing career as a poet. And so even when I write fiction, although it's not always true, but I like to have not necessarily a constraint, but something that's a little bit like artistic or a little bit. So for example, in my book that's set in Massachusetts, that book is written in first person plural in the we voice. I'm not saying that it's harder or easier to do, but it's, it's a little harder. And so by giving myself a challenge like that, it keeps me on my toes. And so I always try and bake in some kind of challenge so in this book, it only made sense to me that it would be written in present tense. It was challenging, especially because the book is not linear with respect to time. So, you know, if your book was linear, it would still be hard, but it wouldn't be that hard. But because, you know, we see them as children, we see them in different stages of growing up, you know, and so that was a real challenge for me to keep the book in present tense and yet to write it in a way that wouldn't be overly taxing on the writer. I'm sorry, on the reader. So hopefully, you know, fingers crossed, hopefully I managed to do that.
0: Well, Quan Berry, thanks so much for joining us. For our listeners, you can pick up a copy of Quan's new novel, When I'm Gone, Look for Me in the East. I r- highly recommend it. We like to close these podcasts with a short guided meditation. So Sharon leads that. I'm not
2: qualified. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I'm going to hand it over to you, Sharon. Thank you.
2: Thank you so much. Am I qualified? I don't know. I guess in my previous <laughs> life, I must have done this. You must have done something right. I must have done something right. It's true. Let's just sit together for a few minutes. It's a wonderful way just to, I think, integrate everything we've heard and talked about and felt in this last time. So if you want to sit comfortably, you can close your eyes or not. And let your attention settle on something like the feeling of the breath, the sensations of the breath. This is the normal, natural breath. And if the breath doesn't work for you, that's fine. Something else that's happening that you don't have to strain for, the sound of my voice or the feeling of your hands touching, it's a resting place for the mind. And so the operative word is rest. We choose an object like that that's already happening. We rest our attention. I the instruction is to rest lightly like a butterfly resting on a flower. This object of our awareness is already happening. We don't have to make it happen. We just rest. If your attention wanders, the past, the future, judgment, speculation, or you fall asleep, truly don't worry about it. You can realize you've been gone and as much as possible without judgment. See if you can let go and simply return to that original object. We let go and we begin again. so
0: thank you. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you, Quan.
1: Thank you so much.
0: You've been listening to Life As It Is with Kwan Berry. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast, so write us at feedback at tricycle.org to let us know what you think. Life As It Is and Tricycle Talks are produced by As It Should Be Productions and Sarah Fleming. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening.